Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Author and journalist Matthew Contineni talks about the history of the American conservative movement since the early 20th century. In his new book, The Right, The 100-Year War for American Conservatism, he writes that a populist strain challenged mainstream conservatism several times over the last century, ultimately triumphing with the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Mr. Continenti is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon. Matthew Continenti, we're talking on the publication date of your new book, The Right, The 100-Year War for American Conservatism. So tell me about this project and why you took it on. Well, I've always had an interest in old journalism. It's kind of a hobby of mine. And when I started as a reporter and commentator here in D.C., I began reading through the archives of the publication where I worked, The Weekly Standard, and then other conservative publications like National Review. But it was really around 2012, with the uh, Romney loss to Barack Obama, that I became aware of a deep disconnect between conservatives in the grassroots throughout the country and conservatives in Washington, D.C., where I lived and worked. And so I began wondering how that disconnect came about. And that uh, inquiry led me to research and write the history of the American right over the last hundred years. Yeah, there's a lot to cover in a hundred years because there's uh, many, many characters who come in through your storyline. But as we begin, would you define conservatism? You open the book with a quote from Abraham Lincoln on this. So define it, please. Well, for Lincoln, he said, you know, what is conservatism? It's the old and tried It's the policy of the fathers, of the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution. I think that uh, American conservatism has a very distinct meaning, and the adjective American does a lot of work. You know, conservatives elsewhere tend to defend inherited institutions. And in the European context in the 19th century, that meant that conservatives uh, supported the monarchy, supported the state church, supported the aristocracy and the class system. Well, in the United States, we don't have a king, we don't have an established church, and we don't have lords and baronesses. So what do American conservatives want to defend? I think the answer is the political institutions set up with the Constitution, set up in the founding, the principles of the Declaration of Independence. But one reason I called my book The Right is that the definition I just offered you is not the only definition of American conservatism out there. And so I wanted to have a larger category, what I call the right, which are people like me, self-identified American conservatives, but also includes other groups who may not share that definition, but who are nonetheless opposed to the left and to, and to liberals. So uh, I can tell you what an American conservative is by my lights, but I'm not sure everyone would agree on the right. Well, tell me about your origin story. Who influenced your thinking? Well, um, I became a conservative through Columbia University, but not because I was reacting to radical professors, but because Columbia has the core curriculum where they force you to read the great works of Western literature and philosophy. And so it was reading Plato and it was reading Adam Smith, Edmund Burke, the Federalist Papers that uh, made me wake up uh, and (laughs) find that I was on the right. I was an American conservative. And then, of course, there are people who have been greatly influential to me, um, including William F. Buckley Jr., who's a major protagonist in this history, and also a thinker named Irving Kristol, uh, who's called the godfather of neoconservatism. 
uh, his writings um, had a huge effect on my, on my thought. But there are others as well, uh, people like the late columnist Charles Krauthammer, um, George Will, who's very much alive and still writing. Uh, he's a friend and uh, inspiration. So those are the sorts of figures who played a large role in shaping my worldview. In addition to devi- defining uh, conservative, would you also define populism because it's another major <clears throat> thread that makes its way through your book? Absolutely. <clears throat> so I define populism as confidence in the decision-making power of everyday people and elitism as in a lack of confidence in the decision-making power of everyday people. And elitism is the belief that experts and the people in charge, whether they're in charge of the culture, whether they're in charge of the economy, whether they're in charge of politics, are better able to make decisions for the rest of us than just you and me or other people um, who wake up in the morning and go about their daily lives. So this conflict between populism and elitism, I think, is a running thread throughout American history. And it also intersects with my story, because what the conservatives found after World War II is that the audience for the arguments they were making weren't the elites, weren't the people in charge, but were in fact the people, the people who uh, were um, reacting to uh, liberal administrations and liberal decision-making. If one were to attempt a similar history of the left in the United States, would you find the same sort of tensions running through governing philosophies throughout, or is it unique to the right? Well, I do think that the left has its own... um, relationship with populism. Um, I think in the 20th century, the left has been more um, troubled by its relationship to the extreme left, the radical left, and having to negotiate that. One of the things that benefited the Republican Party and the conservative movement was that in the late 1960s and the 1970s, the mainstream Democratic Party became identified in the eyes of the public with the more radical elements of the left, and that discredited it the Democratic Party and helped uh, Richard Nixon become president, win his landslide in 72 in re-election, and then helped Ronald Reagan win the presidency in 1980. I think there's always a danger for every political party to be uh, captured by its most extreme elements and thus discredit itself in the eyes of the public. That happened to the Democratic Party after Vietnam, after the rise of the counterculture, and I worry that it could happen to the Republican Party uh, now. I was struck by the very last paragraph in your book, and I I wanted to read it because it provides um, one thing I want to talk about and then something of an organizing principle for lots of history to cover in just an hour. So you write, in the space of 100 years, despite setbacks and internal battles, the American right had come of age, gained the trust of its fellow countrymen, changed the world, and then after decades of confusion, joined forces with a man it did not trust, but eventually came to adore. That man departed Washington with the Republican Party out of power, conservatism in disarray, and the right in the same hole it had dug with Charles Lindbergh, Joe McCarthy, John Birch, George Wallace, and Pat Buchanan. Not only was the right not able to get out of the hole, it did not want to. So let me start by asking the worldviews of people like Lindbergh, McCarthy, John Birch Society, George Wallace, Pat Buchanan. What do they represent? Well, I think they represent a form of um, the American right uh, that in varying degrees uh, has drifted toward conspiracy theory, has distrusted elites so much that it ends up in close to distrusting America and the capacity for American government and the American people. But they're also distinct in a few ways. Um, 
begin with Charles Lindbergh, for example, uh, national hero, became the most the prominent spokesman for the America First Committee, opposing American entry into the Second World War. He what represented the pre-World War II American right, which was um, a non-interventionist, not wanting to become involved in the great power politics of Europe. Now, McCarthy, coming after the war, in his rise to power, he uh, had, in fact, a very fulsome anti-communist foreign policy. Right? He actually supported international engagement uh, to fight communism, but he also had a conspiratorial worldview where he felt, and he charged, that the government, the executive branch, had been infiltrated by communists. Um, and the, he went overboard in many of his rhetorical claims. Right? Wallace is a figure who I would not call an American conservative, and yet somehow he situated himself in a place where many elements on the American right were supportive of his presidential campaigns in 68 and 72. And he was a populist figure and a demagogue. And there was no question about that. But he also used rhetorical tropes that we find in our politics today, bashing the elites, saying there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, and uh, a uh, rhetorical extremism um, that, that can wind up with fanaticism. Buchanan, uh, who is... Uh, occupies quite a bit of space in my history because he shows up in the early 1960s working for Richard Nixon and is still relevant today. All these years later, he represented a turn to back to the pre-World War II right, the Lindbergh right. He resurrected, rehabilitated the phrase America first long before Donald Trump appropriated it for his purposes. So you see the through line uh, of um, figures who... Uh, have a populism that becomes negatively charged, that is conspiratorial, that is um, uh, points to scapegoats, and that often can lead to places where they're arguing not just against the left, but they begin arguing against America itself. That's a danger, I think, for the right, just as the converse would be a danger for the left. If, uh, if economics provides a con constant storyline and preserving the American economy, uh, one that also is constant throughout is immigration. Mm -hmm. And another one that I wanted to talk about was uh, racial politics and, and pr pursuit of equal justice. So uh, I guess uh, starting with immigration, especially the people that were the outliers uh, that you mentioned throughout these various periods of history, why was immigration oh, a f such a flashpoint continually? Well, what's interesting uh, is that my story beginning in the 1920s, you have the Exclusion Acts really shutting down um, immigration um, from, from uh, Europe uh, and from elsewhere for about 40 years. And there was uh, a race element to it, um, and these acts were supported not only on the right, but also on figures on the progressive left. Um, there was a sense that America didn't want its cultural distinctiveness lost amid um, the newcomers, right? And actually a lack of confidence in America's ability to change the people who come here. The immigration issue really subsides, and it's not until after the end of the Cold War that it reemerges as a flashpoint, and you begin to see arguments uh, that the liberal immigration policy, which started in the 1960s, had again um, gone too far 
and immigration needed to be controlled and restrained. You see that in the early 1990s. But it is really with the George W. Bush's presidency and President Bush's attempts to enact a comprehensive immigration reform that would include an amnesty for illegal immigrants where this divide between the populist grassroots and the conservative elites here in Washington just uh, explodes and becomes far, far worse. So why is immigration an issue? Well, immigration's high. I mean, it's, it's uh, increased. And we look at the headlines today uh, with the, uh, really the collapse of enforcement at the border um, and uh, the, the mass migration from the global south into, into the southern United States. There's every reason why people ought to be concerned about it. The question is, how does that concern manifest itself? And does it point to solutions that are both realistic and effective? Before we leave immigration, Ronald Reagan in 1986 signed Simpson-Mazzoli, mm-hmm. which gave uh, the citizenship to about three million previously undocumented immigrants to the United States. You don't really see that point emphasized about Reagan's accomplishments. Why was that, uh, why was that, when they point to Reagan as really a paragon of the conservative movement, why does that not stay with his, uh, his resume? Well, and I would add to that too, it was Ronald Reagan who really envisioned NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement. He started talking about it in his presidential campaign in 1980. Eventually it comes into being under Bill Clinton in the 90s. Why doesn't the right point to that? Well, this is another reason why I wrote my book. So many of the standard histories of the American right begin at the end of World War II and they kind of culminate with Ronald Reagan's victory. But I thought that could be misleading because Reagan was very unique. He was unique not only in the um, continuity of his beliefs, he was also unique in his personality in the way in which he was able to be a populist figure but represent a populism that was much more uplifting, hopeful, forward-looking and agenda-driven than other populisms we've had in the past. I thought if we just include Reagan as one character among many, we get to see the real picture of the American right. And the picture of the American right we see is one where Reagan is really the outlier, especially on an issue such as immigration. And of course, um, when you get to the George W. Bush era and the backlash against Bush's immigration policies, that in a way is a discrediting of the Reagan policy as well. So we're going to go back in history to the, the time which you say the, the right came of age, the modern conservative movement. Uh, so from the 1950s after World War II, maybe for the next 30, 40 years, this is, seems to have established, and you're telling, the foundational principles, both in politics, intellectual conservatism, and economics. So some of the names that come up, first of all, in intellectual conservatism, we meet James Burnham, Russell Kirk, and William F. Buckley. What were their foundational contributions to the thinking of American conservatism? Sure. Well, James Burnham uh, was uh, an ex-communist, an uh, ex-Trotskyist, who became a devoted anti-communist. He really contributed a hard-headed realism to the pursuit of rolling back communism, of defeating communism. And he uh, was called by William F. Buckley Jr. perhaps the primary intellectual influence on Buckley's magazine, National Review. Russell Kirk is the founder of what you might call the traditionalist school of American conservatism. 
It was his book, The Conservative Mind, where he basically created a tradition drawn actually mainly from European sources that American conservatives could identify with. And so it was Russell Kirk who kind of brought in Edmund Burke into American politics, right? And he became an extraordinarily prolific writer and a contributor to National Review as well. He wrote a monthly column for many years. Buckley, though, is the founder, I think, of the um, conservative intellectual movement in America and played a great role in the founding of the conservative movement, full stop, in America as well. Buckley was the ecumenical figure. He was somehow able to encompass within his own personality both traditionalists like Russell Kirk and more libertarians like Milton Friedman, who stressed the free economy and liberty. And so he was presiding over the National Review, which for many years was the main intellectual journal of American conservatism. And he also um, exemplified a certain lifestyle, a certain elan that was very attractive to many young people and inspiring to them. People wanted to be like William F. Buckley Jr. He was witty. He was very good at debate. He could go up against the best that liberals had to offer and, if not defeat them, uh, very much go toe-to-toe, you know. Um, And so people looked up to him. These are all the contributions of the figures you mentioned. I I neglected to follow up on the civil rights issue. And throughout your telling of William F. Buckley's enduring presence, there are several references to his positions on uh, civil rights and racial policies. Where would you put him in that particular aspect of American Well, he was not a supporter of civil rights. Uh, In fact, he uh, stirred some controversy internally in National Review in his defenses of the South. Uh, during the 1950s, um, uh, during the Eisenhower civil rights bills, um, he opposed those bills. Um, he later repudiated these views, but it did, I think, align National Review and the American right with the opposition to civil rights, which I think hurt the movement in the long run um, by associating, associating it with these, with these legacies of, of racism and segregation. Um, There were, however, uh, people who resisted joining the right on precisely these grounds. So when you think about the later neoconservatives, or you think about some of the figures associated with the philosopher Leo Strauss, they supported civil rights. And it was because Buckley and National Review opposed civil rights that they were leery of joining this movement, even though uh, they had other things in common with it. So it wasn't until much later, once that issue was settled in, with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1965, that I think the neocons and some of the other groups could, could come over and join the conservative movement. It, people might find it interesting that you observe that the era of Dwight Eisenhower gave birth to movement conservatism because it's the first time that libertarians, traditionalists, and ex- and anti-communists found common ground. And we're hearing that in some of the various points of view of the these founding fathers, more or less, of the movement. What, what is the significance of it moving from uh, general principles, maybe during the Coolidge uh, and Harding era, to a movement? Mm-hmm. Well, it's ironic to me because, you know, when we think of Dwight Eisenhower, we think, I like Ike, we think of this remarkably popular Republican president. And yet 
it was during his era that the conservative movement really came into being in opposition, in criticism of many Eisenhower policies. Why was this? Well, the conservatives of the time thought that Eisenhower accommodated too much of the New Deal, that he was carrying on the legacy of the New Deal that the American right uh, vociferously opposed. And in foreign affairs, they thought that Eisenhower's foreign policy was also uh, much too beholden to the ideas of containment rather than rolling back communism. And so in particular, and it has some relevance today, when America did not intervene in the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, and it was quashed by the Soviets, uh, the conservatives felt a huge betrayal and were very angry at Eisenhower. But at this time, the conservatives, the American right, was still really on the margins of American politics and American intellectual life. They had to find a way back to the center, uh, to, the, to where things were being debated. And that began with the translation of these general principles, as you say, into concrete policy proposals. And this is why I think Barry Goldwater was such an important figure. He not only becomes the first Republican nominee who is a self-identified conservative in really close to 30 years, but his campaign provides a home for these conservative and right-leaning intellectuals to actually propose concrete solutions. And so he was taking legal advice from his friend William Rehnquist and from uh, Robert Bork. He was taking economic advice from Milton Friedman. And he was having the political philosopher Harry Jaffa help write his speeches. So it's really with Goldwater where you begin to see the transition from a general uh, opposition to the New Deal, opposition to um, simply trying to contain communism, and a movement into concrete proposals that can actually affect um, the lives of everyday Americans. Prior to Barry Goldwater as a a face of the conservative movement, uh, there was Senator Robert Taft. And uh, he, uh, as you say, rose to prominence in the very late 1930s and continued to be a voice for the next 20 years. We have a clip of him because some of the things he's talking about seem to resonate with debates we're having right now. Let's listen. I don't think this project is primarily our project. Seems to me that our, our chief strategy is control of the CNR throughout the world. The defense of Europe is primarily the concern of the European nations. Uh, I'm most willing to help them in that, uh, in that operation. But I certainly do not want to get to the position we are in Korea, where we provide 90% of the force that is fighting the Russians on the continent of Asia. Uh, today, 90% in the continent, continent of Europe in the case of the Atlantic Pact. He ultimately voted against the creation of NATO, yeah. uh, and uh, he earned the nickname Mr. Republican. In fact, right outside of our offices uh, here on Capitol Hill, there is a big monument, uh, Carillon, to Senator Taft. How did he become so influential when many of the others of his party were fully supporting Truman Doctrine w- ways to rebuild Europe and defend Europe? <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I have an anecdote in the book uh, where um, one of his colleagues, uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, who was very much pro-NATO and pro-American engagement overseas. An internationalist said, my colleague Robert is giving me a headache once again because Robert Taft represented the pre-World War II American right. Of 
course, he had the lineage of his father, the president and chief justice. Uh, he had been the protege of Herbert Hoover. And one of the reasons why he loathed American involvement in Europe is that he had helped Hoover during re American relief efforts after the Great War, after World War I. And he was horrified by what he saw. And he thought that America should not become entangled in conflicts that devastate civilization like, th like the First World War did. So he was opposed to the New Deal. He's elected to the Senate in 1938. He quickly rises to the top. He tries unsuccessfully to win the Republican nomination several times, basically because, as he himself admitted, he, he didn't really have much of a personality. He wasn't, he wasn't the most charismatic figure. But he did represent this idea of what the historian Alan Lichtman calls disengaged nationalism. And it's a phrase I use uh, in my own book as well which is that America should be strong. As we heard in the clip, America should have a preponderance of air and sea power. But America also should be disengaged from the world. We shouldn't take the lead. We should let other people do the fighting. And that would somehow preserve our independence and our strength. Well, that attitude is delegitimized in the eyes of many um, in government and, and outside of government because of the experience of World War II and because of the rise of Soviet power at the dawn of the Cold War. And so Robert Taft um, was a little bit out of sorts with his own party on these issues of uh, foreign policy, even as he rose briefly to um, be the Senate Majority Leader in the opening stages of the uh, Eisenhower administration. Um, he was a relic of an earlier American right. That, as you say, is actually... Uh, reminds us of a large part of the American right today. So in the Eisenhower administration, you re made reference earlier to Senator Joseph McCarthy and his uh, red-baiting tactics, which earned the condemnation of many of his own party uh, and the country at large, and ultimately he self-destructed. But you said that the party took away a couple of lessons from the experience about the importance of mass media and the value of big personalities. How mm -hmm. did they deploy those lessons? Well, um, uh, McCarthy became a problem for President Eisenhower because McCarthy's uh, crusades, his anti-communist crusades, were directed at the executive branch. And as he grew in power and stature, he became more willing uh, to subtly challenge Eisenhower's own authority. So Eisenhower deputizes his vice president, Richard Nixon, to go on national television and say that McCarthy is hurting the cause of anti-communism. And it's Eisenhower's very sly, very shrewd um, subversion campaign of, <laughs> of the anti-subversive McCarthy that helps lead to McCarthy's downfall. But I think what the conservatives found with McCarthy is, once again, that the public shared their concerns about communist infiltration. And even while the arguments they were making about communists in government were uh, being let, uh, criticized in the major media institutions and were not being taken seriously by the professoriate or by large parts of the government, McCarthy had somehow identified that a large number of Americans were passionately interested in this. Anti-communism became the common ground not only among the various groups of conservatives, but also between the American right and the American people. It was critically important to the success of the American right. 
and McCarthy kind of uh, exemplified that while he was still at his apogee. So if uh, the 1960s brought uh, Barry Goldwater as uh, the public face of the conservative movement, he earned the nickname Mr. Conservative as opposed to Mr. Republican. Uh, During that period, the movement also contended with the rise of the John Birch Society. What was that? John Birch Society was a mass member organization, anti-communist, patriotic, secretive, but its founder was a conspiracy theorist. Its founder, Robert Welch, believed that Eisenhower himself was a communist. And um, it kind of went on from there. (laughs) And so the conservative leaders like Buckley and like Goldwater knew that uh, they would not be able to make inroads with the everyday American public if they were associated with these crazy beliefs. And so a process of disentangling American conservatism from the John Birch Society began taking shape in the early 1960s. One of the reasons that Goldwater lost and lost so badly was that project had, was not entirely successful by the time Goldwater ran for president in 1964. He was continually associated with the Birch Society and the uh, conspiracy-minded fringe of American politics. In fact, it wasn't really until 1965, after the Goldwater election, when the John Birch Society came out against America's involvement in Vietnam, that the conservatives truly repudiated the Birchers and uh, severed their connection with the movement for a for many decades, but no does, longer. Does it still exist? It today? does still exist, yes. We have uh, another clip, and this is actually William F. Buckley, so we get to see and hear him talking about the John Birch Society in one of his books in 2003. He persuaded a lot of Americans that the Soviet Union was winning the Cold War and that the reason for this was that um, the whole government of the United States was riddled with traitors uh, and with men and women who were reconciled to communist victory. Well, that's hard to believe, but uh, you said Senator Goldwater was reluctant to denounce the John Birch Society. He didn't want to single out uh, that uh, organization for denunciation in San Francisco when he was nominated for president. He only went so far as to denounce extremists. Uh, This was a, there was a ton of pressure on him to name the John Birch Society But he said he didn't want to do that, denouncing them meant denouncing some of his best supporters. Uh, As a a matter of fact, his own campaign manager was a member of the John Birch Society. So was my mother. So throughout all of the history that you tell, when we talked about the earlier uh, people who might have been on the fringes, the reality is that political parties are coalitions and sometimes need these people in order to win elective office. Absolutely. So here, here is an example, but his statement at the convention, about, a famous statement about extremism, was that ultimately the nail in the coffin for him? Well, there's a funny anecdote I tell in the book where um, he delivers his famous line at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, let me remind you that extreme, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Um, and one journalist turns to another within earshot of a friend of mine and uh, said, dear God, he's going to run as Barry Goldwater. 
And there was a sense that Goldwater's personality and principles were just not quite where the American public was at the time. But, you know, George Will has a, likes to say that um, Barry Goldwater won the 1964 election. It just took 16 years to count the votes. He finally was vindicated with the election of Reagan in 1980. Well, it was his election, his campaign in 1964 that introduced the party and the public to Ronald Reagan in his famous speech, A Time for Choosing. We have a quick clip of that as well. Let's watch. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war, and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Well, I think it's time we ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the Founding Fathers. Not too long ago, two friends of mine were talking to a Cuban refugee a businessman who had escaped from Castro. And in the midst of his story, one of my friends turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. So earlier you said Ronald Reagan was a singular figure in his ability to make all the strands of Republican and conservative ideology believe that he was one of them. So what was his, his straight line from that speech to the White House? Well, you can see some of it in just in that clip, uh, the reference to the framers, right? So he's grounding his principles in the American founding. Um, the, the anecdote about the Cuban uh, refugee um, is an example of American exceptionalism and its role in Ronald Reagan's thinking. But then there's also just the style and the presentation, um, the dynamism of his voice, its timber. You know, he was a radio broadcaster, and of course he was a film star, a B-movie star, but a film star nonetheless. He was able to present these ideas in a way that was not threatening to people. If Barry Goldwater gave the same speech, People might say, oh, gosh, you know, or Barry would make some acerbic uh, wisequack or something. Reagan was non-threatening, um, also always ready with a quip or, a, you know, that glint in his eye, a smile. This was incredibly important for the future of the American right because with Reagan they had a spokesman who what, represented all the best they had to offer, right, and wasn't pushing people away. Uh, and indeed was attracting them. Um, at the beginning of that speech we just played, he says that, you know, he used to be a Democrat. And indeed he voted for FDR four times, supported Truman in 48, but that the, his party had left him, as he used to say. So he was not narrow casting. He was not just speaking to people who were already conservatives or who were already on the right. He was broadcasting. He was trying to appeal to Democrats and independence, to widen the coalition. All these things made unique, uh, Reagan a very unique political figure. And of course, he was the leader who brought conservatism into power, uh, really for the first time since the 1920s. So if I go back to the construct of your closing paragraph, comes, uh, rises to power and then changes the world. Is this what you're crediting Ronald Reagan with in the collapse of the Soviet Union? I believe that Reagan was uh, very much responsible for the collapse of the Soviet Union. Obviously there were other factors. The Soviet economy was in a state of decay. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the
the senator from New York, very early in the 1980s, says, there's no way that the Soviet Union will survive. And people kind of looked at him and saying, what are you talking about there, this military machine? So obviously the Soviet economy was in a mess. But I do believe it was Reagan's policies of pressure, not just the defense buildup, not just the freedom fighters, the Reagan doctrine of supporting the anti-communist insurgents throughout the world, not just the strategic defense initiative proposing this idea of space-based missile defense, but his ideological pressure, his constant speeches denouncing the Soviet Union, saying that it was um, destined for the dustbin of history, that put pressure on the communists as well and inspired internal dissent movements and, I think, created the space for Mikhail Gorbachev to emerge as the leader of the Soviet Union, introduce his reforms of glasnost and perestroika, and from there, we know how it all ended. Before we leave the Reagan area, uh, one other thing that is significant in your telling is the appointment of Edwin Meese as Attorney General and the focus by the right from that point forward on the importance of the judiciary, specifically yes. the Supreme Court. Will yes. you comment on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's with Reagan where originalism, which had begun in academic circles in the 1970s, this idea that the judge's role is to refer to the, con the constitutional text and also to look at the actual text of laws and its original intent and meaning at the time of ratification really comes into the institutions with Reagan. And Mies engages in a, a high-profile public debate on exactly this, the principles of originalism. Right? There's a setback there because Robert Bork is defeated uh, in 1987 for the Supreme Court. But I think we see the fruits of that movement today when we look at the Supreme Court. This through line of the rise of the conservative legal movement in America is um, an important part of my story. And also, I think, from the point of view of someone on the right, one of the conservative movement's greatest successes. So the West got what it wanted in terms of foreign policy with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that led to what you call decades of confusion for the conservative movement. Why was that? Well, it's because that fundamental glue that was connecting those conservatives for much of the 20th century, this idea that communism represented an existential threat to the United States, to Western civilization. And so whatever disagreements we have internally have to be put aside because of the overarching nature of that threat and to fight communism. Well, that, that disappears. And so conservatives begin looking inward. They try finding new substitutes for communism as places of common ground. For a moment, it seemed as though the fight against terrorism might provide a substitute. But that is not how things worked out in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so without that common thread of anti-communism, the separate groups that constituted the American right begin to go their own ways, while also we have the, another resurgence of populism that becomes apparent in the early 1990s, but then becomes much more apparent uh, at the close of the uh, early 2000s and uh, continues to this day. We have about 20 minutes left in our hour um, before the, we leave the Reagan administration. Two things. We haven't talked a lot about the importance of media to the overall uh, trajectory of the conservative movement. But in 1987, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed. And in 1988, Rush Limbaugh's radio program was syndicated. You write, Limbaugh's importance to the conservative movement cannot be overstated. 
He became, for many decades, a figure in the Buckley-Reagan tradition, someone who was able to unify all these disparate elements, a voice of conservatism uh, that all figures on the right looked to and respected. Um, He also provided a model uh, for communication. He creates very few people can say that they not only mastered their industry, but also created it, right? And that was Limbaugh and national syndicated talk radio. So especially when Reagan departs the scene, right? Uh, And there's a moment there in the early 1990s where you don't have Ronald Reagan anymore. You have a new world. We don't know what will take the place of anti-communism. Rush Limbaugh kind of filled that void, and he kind of turned uh, American conservatism and made it uh, more populist. He made it more um, irreverent and not um, not deferential to what liberals were were saying uh, that you ought to do or this is how you ought to behave. He gave it uh, a wit, um, uh, sometimes you know. Uh, not always a tasteful wit, but <laughs> he gave it that sense of humor, happy warrior. Um, and he was uh, basically the place where millions and millions of Americans would go to um, to hear about politics and to hear about the news. And it was also the time in the rise of the newsletter industry and fundraising by e- beginning of email. And uh, you write, by 1993, Reagan's true successor had revealed itself. It was not a single political figure. It was the conservative institutional and media superstructure that had taken on gi- gigantic dimensions during the 12 years of Republican presidents. Yes. I mean, Reagan not only changed the world, uh, he changed Washington, D.C., and he changed conservatism. Um, But he didn't necessarily change conservatism in the way he intended. He made conservatism so successful that uh, it grew. It grew beyond the capacity of any one person or one institution to control. And uh, that also uh, created opportunities uh, for people who were self-interested or uh, people who... Uh, had their own um, vision of what the right ought to be. Um, it became harder to police, to set the boundaries of American conservatism in the aftermath of the Reagan presidency and the growth of new media, such as talk radio. And then, of course, once you get to the Internet and social media, everyone has a voice. Everyone has a platform. So in the interest of time, let me fast forward to the Clinton administration. Because uh, the interesting thing is... Clinton brought uh, the New Democrats, which was considered a third way to find a path between the policies of the left and the, and the right, and in fact was responsible for passing some legislation like welfare reform that really was in line with the conservative agenda. Why was there such antipathy between the right and the Clinton administration? Right. I, one of the conclusions I drew from my research and writing is that in many ways Bill Clinton consolidated the Reagan legacy. When you think about free trade, when you think about welfare reform, when you think about balancing the budget and cutting the capital gains tax rate, these were all long-standing Republican Reaganite priorities. They happen under Clinton once he has to deal with a Republican Congress after 1994. So why did the right have uh, such a dislike of Clinton? 
Well, I think it had to do with his personality. Um, th there, so many on the right disliked uh, Clinton's personal behavior. Um, they disliked the slippery way he had with language and with the truth. Um, and uh, they also disliked um, his, uh, his temporizing, his trying to be everything to all people. Um, but I do think that the fixation on Clinton's conduct um, basically um, led conservatives not to recognize how good they were having it uh, post-1994. If you think of crime, it's another place where um, conservatives had been making arguments about incarceration and policing for a long, long time. Finally, those arguments are really put into place during the Clinton era and have tremendous results. So I, I joke in the book that, you know, the conservatives enjoyed all these successes under Clinton, and they never forgave him for it. But also during that period, we uh, see the reemergence of Pat Buchanan as a political force with two runs for the presidency, actually three by 2000, under a different party label. Ross Perot, uh, with his two bids, getting 19% of the vote in one instance. So what is the thread that is emerging within the Republican Party uh, at that point? Well, I think it's this... Uh, the, this reemergence of the old pre-World War II right. Caused by what? Well, caused by the lack of communism, caused by the changing nature of the global economy. And so the uh, beginning with Pat Buchanan's presidential campaign, his second one really in 1996, you see the outlines of a new politics, uh, an anti-globalist right. Uh, America should return to the tradition of disengaged nationalism. Um, size of government questions aren't important. It's national identity uh, and national sovereignty matters much more. So Buchanan um, was not uh, powerful enough to win the Republican nomination. Eventually led, as you say, to him leaving the GOP for the Reform Party briefly. Um, but that idea was very powerful and there were elements within the Republican coalition who definitely agreed with him and so it took would have to take a different leader to bring those uh, viewpoints into the center of the, uh, the Republican Party and that's what happened I think in 2016 with Donald Trump right uh, so uh, I'm, wa I'm watching the clock here with our 15 minutes, but with the, the 2000 and the election of George Bush, we talked about immigration policy being such a flashpoint for on the right, uh, but also uh, the Iraq War and 9-11, but then leading to the Iraq War. What did the um, prosecution of the Iraq War do for <clears throat> the neoconservatives at the Weekly Standard who were so much in support of it, which was where you were employed at that That's time? That's right, yes. Well, um, a couple things. One was that uh, Buchanan then reintroduces himself right before the war, and he launches his own magazine, The American Conservatism, which is launched to oppose the war. And the Weekly Standard, where I worked, was associated with the war, had argued for it, but had also argued, uh, even before the war was launched, that the Bush administration was not devoting the resources necessary, and specifically the number of troops necessary to secure Iraq. And I believe that point of view was vindicated because of the occupation and um, the insurgency that followed. And it took many years for Bush to correct course, to change his strategy, to send more troops, uh, and indeed to defeat the insurgency. By the time that happened, though, the American public had soured on the Iraq War, 
and the viewpoint represented by the Weekly Standard was beginning to lose its influence uh, within the Republican Party. More people were coming to a more, a more non-interventionist uh, attitude and began to believe that the Iraq War uh, and the Bush doctrine of promoting freedom uh, had been a mistake. And on the economic front, <clears throat> global financial collapse in 2007 and 2008 and the election of Barack Obama. Um, and I, I'm wondering, uh, again, with so much to cover in so little time, you write that every faction of the right treated the Obama presidency as an inflection point. Why? Well, I think uh, Obama uh, made no bones about it. He wanted to be the Reagan of the left. He wanted to be a return to the progressivism of FDR, of Lyndon Johnson, have a new wave of uh, government expansion and involvement in American society and the economy. And so uh, that challenge to the right, I think, was invigorating uh, for all of the various groups of conservatives. Uh, they saw that Obama, if he succeeded, would change the nature of the American social contract in a way perhaps even that Reagan, uh, that FDR had, and that Reagan did modify it in his own way. So um, that's why you saw such opposition uh, to, to Obama and to Obamacare. And at the same time, Obama's policies uh, led to a, a populist explosion that we saw with the Tea Party. And what made the Tea Party unique was that it wasn't just opposed to Obama and to progressive elites. It was also opposed to Republican and conservative elites. It was genuinely opposed to all elites. And the, that trend only grew uh, during the Obama years. And then in 2016, Donald Trump, and you say these, ex the, these uh, divisions that you've just described, he masterfully exploited the divisions in the GOP and the conservative movement and accelerated the party's move towards national populism. Uh, why was he able to do that? few reasons. One, uh, he benefited from a multi-candidate field, right? There were many, many Republicans running for the presidency. None was able to coalesce all the anti-Trump forces around him. Uh, and so Trump benefited from the divisions among his opponents. But the other reason is Trump is a very shrewd political operator. And he has an enormous talent of identifying his opponent's weakness and exploiting it, usually in the form of a nickname. Um, and uh, Trump was able to do that with his major opponents, uh, beginning with Jeb Bush, um, the son of H.W. and brother of W., uh, but also extending to Senator Marco Rubio, Senator Ted Cruz, um, and, and others of his rivals. He had a very devoted following. Obviously, President Trump continues to have a very devoted following that he was able to uh, build on um, and insulate from competition from the other Republicans. And that gave him the nomination. But what I think was most important wasn't him winning the nomination. It was the fact that he won the presidency. If he had won the nomination and gone down to defeat, then I think that the Republican Party today would look different than it does. However, he did win the presidency. And when you're elevated to the presidency, presidents, they set the agenda, they define the alternatives, and they also set an example. And they, the institution, in particular the party institution, tends to 
be molded by their personality. And I think that's what you see when you look at the Republican Party today. When you describe Donald Trump as the latest manifestation of recurring anti-establishment spirit in America, it suggests that that populism is cyclical in nature. What seems to be different about this time is the infrastructure of communications, social media, ability to uh, to uh, uh, move quickly on issues and galvanize the public that didn't exist in earlier iterations of populism. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is MAG politics here to stay? Or uh, do you see some way that, there, that it will come back to the more traditional conservatism that, that you were part of in your roots? Sure. Well, I think my conservatism still exists, um, and it still plays a role, especially when Republicans who are put in office by populists need to figure out what to do. And I think it is interesting that when you look at Donald Trump's record, uh, many of his accomplishments were actually long-standing conservative ideas, tax reform, conservative judges spending more on defense, right? I think that shouldn't be ignored. But I do think this populist wave has not crested. And um, one reason it hasn't crested is that uh, the Biden administration has been unable to satisfy uh, the public. And in fact, has torqued up the populism, um, especially with regard to education, parental involvement in education. I think that's where the populism is really drawing its strength uh, as we sit here today. Um, What would it take for the populist wave to crest? Well, I think it would take uh, leaders who are able to address the concerns that animate the populist moment, and that has not happened yet. Um, Our immigration policy is still a mess. Um, uh, Have we dealt with the deaths of despair that are coming from opioid and alcohol addiction? We haven't. Um, Have we reasserted our self-confidence about America's place in the world? We haven't done that. Uh, And have we addressed the rising cost of living? No. And you feel that every day. Until all of those things happen, I think we'll continue to live in a populist moment. I'm wondering, as we close here, based on your reporting of the right's continual fights over national interests versus foreign entanglements, do you have any sense of how our deep support of the war in Ukraine will impact these strains in the Republican Party? Yes. Well, I think that Ukraine has reminded people uh, that uh, there are threats, right? That the great powers, Russia and China, threaten the United States. And I also think uh, it's reminded people that America does stand for freedom. And if we see a small country that is a flawed democracy, but a democracy nonetheless, being invaded for no reason by an autocracy, we're going to stand with the democracy. Where I think things become a little bit more complicated is there is still great reluctance to become directly involved in the military conflict. And so we've settled on a policy where we're going to provide aid to the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Um, and the level of that aid is what, we're, is what we're debating, with many Republicans actually urging the Biden administration to send more weapons more quickly. Matthew Cottonetti, we have just a couple minutes left, and let me turn back to your book specifically. How many years have you been working on it? Well, uh, researching, and uh, it, it's taken about uh, 10 years re- researching, teaching this material. The writing of the book uh, didn't take all that long. It took about a year to write the first draft. What, uh, how did your thinking change in the course of working on this? Well, I think I've been 
become more convinced of the importance of populism in American politics and on the American right. My previous book was about Sarah Palin, so I've been studying this issue for some time. But telling the story in this way suggested to me that populism has to play some role in the American right. It's just a question of what that role will be. I was also uh, happy to learn about some characters that I hadn't really known much about, specifically Senator Taft, who uh, is, a, is in several chapters of the book, and um, I found him quite interesting to, to research. And uh, I was surprised about how much I wrote about Pat Buchanan, <laughs> uh, mainly because he is a fixture on the history of the American right. And as you embark on your book tour, uh, again, today's pub, pub day for you, do, what do you expect will happen as a result of the conversations that will come out of your book? I'm hoping people have a better idea of how the Republican Party got to where it is today, on the verge of perhaps a historic election in their favor, while also being um, in a state of disarray intellectually. So I hope that people kind of see that this is how we got here, but also we've been here before, uh, that Ecclesiastes is right. There is nothing new under the sun. And so we can look to the past for guidance. We can also look to the past for reassurance. We've gotten through it before. We'll get through this. The book is titled The Right, The 100-Year War for American Conservatism. Thanks for giving us the hour, and thanks for coming to the studio. You're my first in-person guest in about a year. It's great to be <laughs> it's, here. It's very nice to have someone <laughs> sitting across from me. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.